Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to Dr. Patricia Savella about her new book, The Movement for Reproductive Justice, Empowering Women of Color Through Social Activism, which was published by NYU Press in 2020. The Movement for Reproductive Justice shows how reproductive justice organizations' collaborative work across racial lines, provides a compelling model for other groups to successfully influence change. The book draws on five years of ethnographic research to explore collaborations among women of color engaged in reproductive justice activism. Patricia Savella is Professor Emerita in the Department of Latin American and Latino Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's also the author of I'm Neither Here Nor There, Mexicans' Quotidian Struggles with Migration and Poverty, and the co-author of Telling to Live, Latina Feminist Testimonios. Pat, welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned to you in an email, I've been concerned about and I've been questioning, how can we resist and organize across differences in this moment, this difficult moment that we're going through? So by showing how it has been successfully done, your book was the source of uh, some much-needed hope for me, and I think it's a necessary and a useful book right now. But before we start talking about the movement for reproductive justice, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what led you to write it? Okay, um, I'm Chicana, that is, born in the United States but of Mexican heritage, first generation to attend university, and very much came of age during the Chicano movement and the establishment of the field of ethnic studies. So I've always seen my work being at the intersections of ethnic studies, particularly Chicana, Chicano studies, uh, feminist studies, and anthropology. Um, I was drawn to this particular research project in part because it resonated so much with how I conduct my life, how I conduct my research, and how I teach. So uh, this is a social movement that bases itself in intersectionality. And I teach intersectionality, or I taught it in virtually all of my classes. And I know it's a very capacious but complex theoretical framework, and um, I've spent a lot of time working with students as they grapple with what does it mean to take an intersectionality approach. I was also drawn to this movement because it also uses the framework of human rights, and it works on behalf of women of color for their human right to not only access health care, but health care with dignity and the right to wellness. So they have this very broad perspective on the kinds of social transformations that need to happen. And then I was also drawn to it because 
Um, many of the organizations that focus on reproductive justice work with racially specific peoples, Chicana Latinas for Reproductive Justice, for example, or Tewa Women United. Uh, and yet they're always in conversation with different uh, constituencies in their local regions and also with differences among activists working on reproductive justice. So they very strategically and consciously use the, the identity of women of color at the same time that they honor local identities such as Chicanex, Latinx, Tewa, African American, uh, et cetera. So it was very interesting to see how they negotiate uh, notions of difference and similarity. And you describe your work as feminist activist research, and you identify here as an ally to those who are working on reproductive justice. Could you explain yeah. that to us? Yeah. So within anthropology, um, a number of feminist and scholars of color have really pushed us to think about the power relations involved when anthropologists conduct their research and write up um, their work. And uh, this is going back to when I was a graduate student in the 1970s, uh, you know, sort of asking to rethink anthropology and really sort of pay attention to the colonialist heritage that the discipline was founded in, where it was very much um, predominantly white male anthropologists going to other parts of the world and studying people who had been colonized and engaging in this process of you know, silently and objectively, quote unquote, uh, observing people and then writing up um, an ethnography that was all about people's, you know, norms and values and patterns of behavior. And those of us involved in critiquing this, of course, pointed out that many of us come from the communities that were studied by anthropologists and had robust critiques of how those uh, analyses uh, sort of often focused on apparent deficiencies within our communities as opposed to structural inequalities. We also raised questions around what happens when those of us who are part of the studies or part of the natives, if you will, uh, become anthropologists and return to our communities. So we were very much questioning the binaries of field work out there as opposed to coming home and suggesting that fieldwork takes place in our homes, uh, sometimes in our home communities. And feminists and activist scholars have really been pushing anthropology to be open about not only our subject positions, but how we work with different kinds of subjects. So, um, you know, many of us are involved with people who are marginalized, who are poor, who are racialized. Uh, who are um, objectified on the basis of their sexual identity or their ability, their legal status. And so activist scholars have suggested that we be open about where our sympathies are. We openly present the social suffering that the people with whom we work um, are forced to endure. And we're open about the kinds of transformations that we support along with the people with whom we work. So activist research very much comes out of pushing the discipline to be more accountable to one another, but in particular to the people with whom we work, to our interlocutors, 
in communities of study. Yes, uh, I, I feel that that's uh, uh, how I feel that uh, doing ethnographic work was possible for me was when I found that 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 this is possible, this type of work is possible. So, but you note here that the research for this project covered multiple sites and incorporated many different techniques. Could you tell us about your process? And as somebody who is contending with that right now, I'm particularly curious about the role of social media in your research. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think um, anthropologists are really paying attention to multiple research techniques, and some of them are involved in actively disrupting this binary of the anthropologist studying the other and really sort of inviting participation by people with whom we work. So photo voice, for example, yes. or, you know, activist research. Um, and in studying a social movement, it was very clear to me that I needed to approach um, this project very carefully and very ethically. and it was really clear that people, you know, didn't want to be studied. You know, they didn't want to engage in that process where the anthropologist comes and takes research away, but they were very interested in dialogue and they were very interested in trying to understand the world around us. Um, and so the te techniques that I use, particularly the focus groups, uh, were very much about sort of getting not only uh, my interlocutor's point of view, but sort of giving the opportunity for there to be disagreements and multiple perspectives by people with whom I was working. Um, you know, when I started this research, I literally heard about the movement for reproductive justice through an email invitation to go to a presentation on reproductive justice. And before that, I had never heard that phrase. And I was really intrigued. And so I began trying to figure out what is this movement by searching online. As so many of us do, you Google it and you find out there are all of these organizations and um, all of these uh, campaigns and demonstrations. Um, and these organizations see themselves as doing grassroots organizing uh, with women of color and in being involved in policy advocacy at the local, state, and national level, but also doing what they call culture shift work which is very much about contesting um, hegemonic frames about women of color and instead not only pushing back and critiquing them, but sort of highlighting the strength and resiliency of communities of color. And these organizations um, have, you know, these are line items in their budget. They work with artists, they have their own websites, they uh, put on these incredible webinars. And so it really was uh, part of my work to try to find the websites of as all of the organizations that I could, follow them on Facebook and on Twitter, and really sort of begin to analyze um, how they were pushing a political project in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. Well, for anybody who might not be familiar, could you define reproductive justice? And could you also explain what is the reproductive oppression that this movement is fighting against? Yeah. So reproductive justice is a social movement that's been active since the mid-1990s, at least. Um, and it sees its mission as um, demanding women's right, human right, to bear children without any kind of uh, coercion or uh, prevention 
Um, and here it's signaling, for example, the sterilization abuse that has been perpetrated against women of color for so long. It also uh, pushes for the right for women to terminate their pregnancies uh, without any obstacles, without any judgment, without any um, impediments that women have the right to uh, get an abortion in this country and they should be able to do that. And they also advocate for women to have the human right to raise their children in healthy environments. And so that really sort of opens up a perspective that looks at issues like living wage so that women earn enough to support their children. It opens up environmental justice issues so that we live in communities that are healthy and where there's access to food and clean water and clear air. And so it's a very capacious perspective and the movement very deliberately engages in coalitions with people working in other social movements. So it's continually pivoting to work on specific campaigns. And then by reproductive oppression, they're very much paying attention, drawing on uh, the United Nations notion of, uh, you know, what uh, reproductive health should look like. They're critiquing the ways in which women are often not taught about their bodies, uh, are often shamed, are often um, forced to endure uh, changes to their bodies. Um, they're very much critiquing the way in which health is often delivered in culturally insensitive ways and the way in which low-income women in particular struggle to have basic access to health care. So they're looking at the way in which reproductive oppression, that is control or limits on women's reproductive health, is enacted by institutions, but also by shaming discourses. Mm-hmm. And you trace here the history of women fighting for reproductive rights back to the 1970s. Could you tell us how did this movement change over time? Ooh, that's a complicated <laughs> question. Um, I guess the shorthand version is that in the 1970s, you know, there was a whole range of women sort of claiming our ancestral knowledge, claiming our right to know what our bodies are all about, um, our right to knowledge, um, and our right to feel safe and respected in health encounters uh, with healthcare practitioners. And women of color in the 1970s very much were uh, in alliance with feminists who were working on these issues, but also raising different kinds of issues like uh, poverty and racialization and cultural insensitivity and language use. So uh, the movement for reproductive justice came out of this kind of activism and efforts around the country by women of color. It was in the mid-1990s that a group of Black women sort of coined the term reproductive justice, sort of putting reproductive rights and social justice uh, together. Um, and then it was uh, in the late 1990s and 2000s that different organizations either were founded with reproductive justice as their mission or shifted their mission away from reproductive rights towards reproductive justice. And over time, um, the last year or two, we've seen several organizations celebrate their 30-year anniversary and it's been really um, heartwarming, frankly, to see that these organizations have survived. Um, most of them rely on 
uh, funding through foundations. So there's always a scramble to find enough resources. Most of these organizations are pretty small. They have small staffs. And frankly, I think they're doing really important work so that they've lasted this long is a real testament to the kinds of strength that women have and the way in which they're constantly sort of trying to fine tune their work. Mm-hmm. And how, uh, you sort of mentioned this, but how does reproductive rights look different when we center women of color and take intersectionality into consideration? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it looks different in the sense that reproductive justice really using intersectionality highlights those who are structurally vulnerable. So of course that means racialized women, uh, women with low incomes, uh, but also women um, who are disabled, uh, women who are queer or gender non-binary, women who are undocumented, uh, women who live in rural enclaves where access to healthcare is really, really challenging. So they very much welcome everyone who, you know, supports their mission, but then they're always highlighting people who are structurally vulnerable. And so they, mm-hmm. they see uh, that all women should have reproductive rights, but reproductive justice is sort of pushing that a little further. I see. And uh, throughout the book, you show us that the reproductive social justice movement integrates, right, human rights and intersectionality to make political claims in three ways, through grassroots organizing, through culture shift work, and through policy advocacy. You started talking about culture shift work, but could you explain what culture shift work is in theory and in praxis, and could you provide an example from your research? Whoa, that's a big question. I devoted an entire <laughs> chapter to this question. Yes. Um, so culture shift work, again, is contesting racist, sexist, heteronormative stereotypes, myths, images, narratives about women of color. Um, and so one example was there were some uh, billboards in Southern California that were all of that basically denigrated Latinas. And so reproductive justice organizations developed a campaign and they got those billboards taken down. Um, Culture shift work is also about recognizing the long histories of strength, resiliency, contestation, and resistance by communities of color. And in particular, the ways in which people not only survived, but they thrived and they're able to express their culture, their language, and their spiritual practices. And so culture shift work is about working with artists, for example, to hone in on what is happening in a particular community to have visual representations that that reflect people's strength and dignity um, and their beauty. And you know, sort of using memes or um, other kinds of artwork to really sort of highlight the kinds of struggles that we've engaged in. Um, it's also, um, I think the, the clearest theorization was by the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health that now is the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. Um, it also sort of cultivates leaders, particularly young women, who can articulate the mission and the vision of the reproductive justice movement, 
And then it's all about cultivating relationships with social media and with um, the mass media so that you can get a reproductive justice approach out there. So you go on a radio program or uh, television news or use Twitter to try to continually sort of push this, promote this perspective that highlights uh, the strength, resiliency, and beauty of communities of color. Mm-hmm. Your, your second chapter is entitled Collaborating Across Differences, and it's sort of like an overarching theme, right, throughout the book. You mentioned here that it was a response to Kimberly Crenshaw's question, what are intersectionalities ready-to-work skills? Uh, can you tell us about this collaborative praxis that incorporates intersectionality and human rights? And I'll, I'll again ask you to provide uh, some examples of those ready-to-work skills in action. Yeah, um, I think it's safe to say this was probably the most challenging chapter to write um, <laughs> because I felt like I was you know, overwhelmed with details. And it finally began to make sense um, as I began to understand that these reproductive justice organizations are not only using intersectionality and human rights, but they're very much developing what they call a methodology that is an organizing approach. And of course, it includes grassroots organizing. And so they again and again emphasize that they see that as work that makes them qualitatively different from um, organizations working on reproductive rights. Um, And they also have learned and have developed this whole fine-tuned approach of learning how to negotiate differences within communities of color. Um, And one of the ways that they do that is by using storytelling as a methodology. Um, And this was something that was really interesting to me because as I was involved with the Latina Feminist Project, storytelling or testimonio, that is telling your life story, was something that we found to be incredibly powerful for building trust, for building solidarity, uh, despite differences among us, but also really helping us to theorize what was going on with us as Latinas. And so this movement has used that storytelling methodology uh, with communities of color. And so one of the examples I use uh, in a later chapter is there, I, I did a focus group with uh, young Asian women who identified as Chinese, Japanese American, um, from India, um, Cambodian, Vietnamese, etc. Um, and they very much use their own process of storytelling and begin to realize that their parents may have similar kinds of approaches. Um, for example, not speaking English well, not understanding uh, why these young women of Asian heritage, you know, wanted to learn more about reproductive justice. And so despite their differences in heritage and even language, they begin to identify, you know, sort of what they had in common and how that was the beginning of the work that they wanted to do collectively. Um, and so that was, that's something that I think many reproductive justice organizations use, and many of them have storytelling projects. I think they also, um, the reproductive justice organizations were formed often because they felt sort of not fully seen and heard in other social justice movements, in civil rights 
movements, for example, or queer rights movements or feminist movements. Um, and they really felt like they were the ones who were continually bringing intersectionality to the table. So in civil rights organizations, what about women and what about reproductive health issues? Um, in queer rights organizations, what about women? What about the issues of trans women, um, et cetera? In feminist organizations, sort of always raising issues around race. And so they felt like forming their own organizations was uh, something that was really important to do, but it was also different organizations had a collective experience of sort of being in this third space, if you will. And out of that experience came this deep understanding and respect and appreciation. So I heard over and over again that not only could they call on their reproductive justice allies for support, not only emotionally, but you know, people would send checks or they would send staff or they would literally work in campaigns. Um, and so they very much felt like this kind of mutual support was something that was qualitatively different than the kind of support that they got from other um, social movements. Mm -hmm. so, uh, your following chapter talks about youth mobilization, right? And it's safe to say that growing up is a hard period for most, but immigrant, undocumented, and mixed-status youth face further challenges, as you show here. Could you talk about those challenges and and how these organizations and individuals that you're discussing here have faced or met those challenges? So I think um, virtually all or mo most of the reproductive justice organizations that I'm familiar with have youth projects. And literally some of them were founded as organizations devoted to youth activism. So um, youth mobilization is really important in this movement and these organizations, you know, again, have a long history of working with young people and fine-tuning, you know, what works. And Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health, in particular, based in Chicago, uh, really, I think, has been on the forefront of fine-tuning that activism. So it's not just, let's figure out what works with kids, but let's invite young people to the table, make them part of our board and part of our decision-making processes, and even have them take leadership in training adults about how to work with young people. So this is a social movement that sees youth, and in particular structurally vulnerable youth, such as undocumented, such as trans, such as African-American youth in Southside Chicago, very much sort of pays attention to the ways in which these youth are growing up in communities that are incredibly segregated by race and class. Um, they go to schools that often offer abstinence-based sex education, if it's offered at all. And these youth are facing prejudice, discrimination, outright racism in their daily lives. And so these organizations are very much sort of working with youth and training them, providing training, but also listening to them and uh, helping to them for define their own leadership skills. So by the time youth graduate from the different projects that they're working with, they are incredibly comfortable articulating a reproductive justice approach, uh, going to Congress to lobby, going to their state legislatures to lobby to demonstrating on the street to producing 
art activism and to engaging their peers and their family members. So it's really a tremendous transformation that these young people go through working with reproductive justice organizations. Yeah, that you mentioned some really amazing projects here. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. So chapter four, I think, is really important right now, because as you know, social activism may also engender uh, exhaustion, emotional distress, trauma, and burnout. That's something many folks were trying to deal with uh, right now uh, as we are navigating an uprising in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. You, you said that it was inspired by Gloria Ansaldúa's thinking about spiritual activism and healing justice. Could you explain that to us? What, what does that mean? So Gloria Ansaldúa uh, spent a great deal of time theorizing about the process of conocimiento or sort of uh, consciousness raising where women sort of have a jolt of understanding as they come to critique how they're imbricated in systems of power related to patriarchy or racialization um, or heteronormativity, um, et cetera. And that this jolt then places them into sort of a liminal space, what she calls nepantla, which they're sort of looking for answers. They're trying to figure out, okay, how did this happen? What do I do? What does this mean for me? How do I move forward? And she saw spiritual activism as a process where women individually begin to reclaim their full sense of self, uh, their pride in all of their identities, and their understanding of how, despite structural limitations, that they have the right to move forward and to be in community with other women. They have the right to speak their language, to practice their religion, to voice their faith, to be in community. Um, healing justice sort of takes this one step further. Uh, this Healing justice is a term that was coined by um, activists, and it really sort of says that in addition to spiritual activism, which is often about self-care, that we need to pay attention to activism that happens around spirituality and spiritual practices in communities of color, that's very much drawing on our histories of resiliency. Uh, so how have we uh, philosophized about the meaning of life, about what it means to be a person and in relationship to nature and other people, uh, to be disempowered and yet to also have other kinds of powers, spiritual powers. And so reproductive justice um, is a movement that very much acknowledges that there's sort of a secular spiritual activism, if you will, in the sense that it honors women's right to claim their whole selves and to express their culture and their spirituality. But healing justice sort of takes it a little further and says, let's actually do spiritual activism in the organization or in the organizing work that we do. So that chapter is looking at how that worked out in different organizations. And in some instances, it's all about bringing healing justice literally into the staff meetings and, you know, breathing together and doing um, cleansings, uh, burning sage, um, sort of 
engaging in a process that's all about acknowledging our spiritual differences, but that spirituality is central to who we are. In other organizations, it's all about um, sort of periodically engaging in movement or in what is called forward stance, which is all about centering and breathing and paying attention to the world around you and paying attention to your senses. Um, and in some organizations, it's all about celebrating the power of sexuality and the way in which eros, which is broadly defined, all about love and connection and relativity. How do we bring that kind of power into our activism? And then I also talk about Table Women United, which is founded on spiritual uh, practices and beliefs and actually, unlike other organizations, has a theory of organizing that's based in their spiritual practice and then designed um, a practice called Healing Rocks that was all about helping young people understand the history of trauma experienced by Native American peoples and an experience of healing. And so all of these organizations are taking uh, spiritual activism to places that are that feel resonant within their communities um, and feels very comfortable and feels like the next step forward in terms of reproductive justice. And how can this be a way of contesting what you call the individualism embedded in neoliberal health systems? I particularly like that. Part. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, it's, we're in such a neoliberal moment right now where we're all supposed to, you know, find our individual mass and our tests and, you know, figure out how to protect ourselves. And healing justice is all about paying attention to what is happening to communities and how can we collectively figure out how to move forward. So that would then pay attention to who are the most vulnerable. And in the current situation, you know, essential workers, they absolutely need to have protection and we need to pay attention to what that looks like for them as a social category as opposed to them as individuals. So I think healing justice is asking us to move away from the neoliberal focus on individuals and privatization and move toward thinking in terms of collectivities, prioritizing the most vulnerable, and trying to figure out what kinds of policies and practices can we enact that will be for the benefit of everyone. Yes. Uh, in your conclusion, you'd note uh, that, well... We, we we know that, right? Since 2016, uh, the 2016 election, we've been seeing and in many ways experiencing this increase in state interpersonal and symbolic violence against immigrants, the poor women, LGBTQ plus folks, and people of color. How did reproductive justice advocates respond to the Trump presidency? So there were sort of uh, two kinds of responses. One was um, an organization that decided to really begin to focus in on racial justice issues. And so they totally retooled uh, their campaigns, their trainings. They literally let off some, uh, let go some staff uh, and began to sort of try to work towards training hundreds 
of activists who were focused on racial justice issues. But the other organizations really uh, sort of doubled down on their work. They sort of said, okay, this um, is horrifying. These kinds of changes are incredibly painful to our communities, but they're an extreme version of what we've been contending with all along. And so we are just going to work more intensely. And fortunately, um, there were um, foundations that were willing to reach out to these organizations and increase their funding. Um, and these organizations have really begun to do more work around um, knowing uh, your rights related to immigration. There have been uh, webinars and there have been trainings in these organizations so that those without authorization to be here know what their rights are, know how to behave if they're trapped in any kind of raid by ICE. Um, they're also focusing in on what the rights are that we have in different states. And we know that uh, challenges to reproductive rights, you know, really are being conducted by conservatives on a state by state basis. And they literally have been organizing, but also filing lawsuits and were successful um, in the um, whole woman health uh, court, Supreme Court decision that uh, nullified uh, Texas's anti-abortion legislation. So, and that kind of work continues. Um, I just wrote a, um, a book chapter about um, the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice work uh, in South Texas uh, near uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, Texas continues its efforts to restrict women's access to abortion and continues to um, enact uh, legal violence against immigrants. Uh, there, are all of, there are checkpoints, for example, where you're driving along and then you get pulled over for some driving infraction and then you, uh, your legal status gets checked and people end up getting deported. So near the U.S.-Mexico border is a place of heightened risk for uh, undocumented migrants. So even though the state has stepped up its efforts, uh, the women organizing uh, in this reproductive justice project very much have stepped up their work as well. So they're organizing demonstrations. They accompany women who go meet with ICE when they're trying to extend their right to stay here uh, indefinitely. They teach women about their rights not to be abused and women you know, learn to stand up to partners who are abusive. They lobby in the state capitol, even though some of these women are undocumented. And they learn basic health uh, practices, such as how to do your own breast examination, which for some women who have had very limited uh, schooling, you know, this is a real revelation. So, yes, we live in dire times when it is incredibly difficult uh, to enact human rights. But I'm really inspired by the way in which uh, reproductive justice organizations are continuing the work and they're having successes. Yes. I was going to ask if you uh, kept up, uh, you were still in touch with the movement after your book, but clearly you are. So how are they reacting to the current, uh, you know, because it seems like to, to 2016 now was a lifetime ago and we're... <laughs> It's crisis on top of crisis. Yeah. And how does collaboration and solidarity across differences look like right now? Um, well, you can really see it. Um, I follow 
all, you know, all of these organizations on Facebook. So you can really see it when they post, you know, we just won this right to, I can't remember the specific law. I'm thinking of um, Color, Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights. Uh, they just pa- they just want some big legislation that I believe provides access to healthcare. Sorry, I'm forgetting the details, but that was a coalition of organizations, immigrant rights, uh, women's rights, uh, civil rights. Um, so th- again, they're very much, very strategically collaborating with one another and checking in with one another. Um, and so the work continues. Uh, I see it on Facebook. I see it on Twitter. Um, I see it in email blasts. I get emails from so many of these organizations. And they're also um, sort of, again, fine-tuning the work. So Sister Song, for example, is organizing a choir that will be featuring these amazing singers and sort of providing a moment, you know, and of course, we're all dispersed around the country, providing a moment in which we will all be able to come together and be spiritually uplifted by the beauty of sound and song. And this, I got that email just a few days ago, and I thought, what a beautiful idea, you know, in this time of COVID, when we're all stuck at home, um, you know, this movement is really sort of trying to figure out how do we reach out and provide information, but also uplift people who are struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much uh, in this book. And like I said, it's a necessary book right now. But I, I like to conclude these interviews with questions about books and projects. So was there any particular book that informed or inspired the movement for reproductive justice? And if not, would you recommend another book to our listeners? Ooh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, it's just that, um, you know, one of the things I point out is virtually all of the staff in these organizations are highly accomplished. You know, they, they all have BAs and many of them have MAs or PhDs or JDs. So they're really schooled. And so intersectionality is not just a political slogan. They've read intersectionality. They've read Crenshaw and um, Patricia Hill Collins and Gloria Anzaldúa and Shereen Moraga, so many other women. Um, and so to point to one book, that would be really, really hard. Uh, I think it's safe to say that they are conversant with the scholarship by feminists of color. Mm-hmm. I see. I know that's it's it's, it's usually a, dif- a difficult uh, question, yeah. but it's just in the spirit of like you know. You know getting folks out there to read other works as well. But what are you working on now? Ah, um, catching. Do you have any other project yeah, on the yeah, way? I, well, let's say it's a gleam in my eye. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I've long had this idea of doing a project that's sort of part history, part memoir. Um, my family um, is from the... Uh, community of Tierra Maria, which is in northern New Mexico. And I've been able to trace my ancestry back to 1811. That is prior to the U.S.-Mexico War that ceded um, half of Mexico's territory to the United States. So my family, you know, is from what was then northern Mexico or more realistically, what was then Native America. And in particular, and my family migrated from Tierra Maria to Southern Colorado and 
literally the family farm in um, Trujillo Creek in Southern Colorado is still in the extended family. Um, And this is a, a fascinating history to me, and there's not been a lot written about it. But what's to me more intriguing is that my grandfather, who died when my mom was a child, was literally half Native American. But when I tried to do an oral history with my grandmother and tried to talk to my aunts and other relatives about that, nobody knew what nation he was from. And at the time, you know, my grandmother, I think, was embarrassed that he was part Native American. You know, this was a time when people of Mexican ancestry in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado called themselves Spanish and really sort of highlighted the Spanish part of our heritage. Um, So I don't know what Native American ancestry is in our family, um, but I'm really interested to try to find out. And so I've begun to pull together some resources and uh, I'm beginning to do this project and maybe that will be my next book. Oh, good. I would love to read it and hopefully you'll come back and talk to us about it. I would love to do that. (laughs) Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate you coming here. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you so much for featuring my book. Yes. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Patricia Zavella about her book, The Movement for Reproductive Justice, Empowering Women of Color Through Social Activism, which was published by NYU Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.